Okay, you can leave your Bibles open to Mark chapter 10. If you don't have one, there's one in the seat back in front of you. There's a table of contents right at the beginning and the bottom half of that page. You'll see Mark and you can turn there. While you do so, let me pray for us for a moment. Father, now as we're here in this moment, we pray for your grace to be upon us all. As I speak, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And as we listen to you, we pray that we would receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save our souls. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've heard the name Yogi Berra, you probably know that he is a famous baseball player, and yet what Yogi Berra is probably more well-known for was his sayings. They were called yogiisms, in fact. And yogiisms were these sayings that Yogi Berra would come up with, and they were always things that people loved to hear because they were these paradoxical, comical, witty sayings. At one sense, you'd hear them, and they'd seem to make no sense at all. And every now and then, you'd listen and think about it more, and you'd find that there was sort of this nugget of wisdom hidden within For example, Yogi Berra is the one who made famous the phrase, it ain't over till it's over. And when you think through that, wait, what does that mean? It ain't over till it's over. He said things like, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. Or then he'd say, listen, you should always go to other people's funerals, otherwise they won't come to yours. And so you scratch your head and you go, wait, what sense does that make? He said, never respond to an anonymous letter. He would lament that a nickel ain't worth a dime anymore. He would say things like, it sure gets late early around here. Uh, he would say these things that would have you scratching your head and you'd go, what, what sense does any of that make? And yet, I thought of that because sometimes when you listen to Jesus in the New Testament, he sounds like a first century Yogi Berra. Meaning, his sayings at times feel like they make no sense at all. They seem contradictory or paradoxical, and yet they're witty, and sometimes within them you find this gem of wisdom. For example, in Luke, Jesus once said, whoever tries to keep his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will preserve it. Now you scratch your head and you go, say that again, Jesus. Whoever loses his life will keep it. The one who keeps his life, however, will lose it. We heard one last week in Mark 10. Jesus said, but many who are first will be last, and those who are last will be first. Now don't just excuse him or be polite. If you scratch your head, you begin to go, wait, what did he mean by that? Those who are first will be last, and those who are last will be first. And there's one in our passage this morning as well. In verse 43, he says this, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. So if you press into Jesus and you say, Jesus, wait, come again, say that again, he would say to you, do you want to be the greatest? Then be the least. Do you want to be first? Then be last. Do you want to have the highest position? Then have the lowest position. And Jesus, with a straight face, would say, that's exactly right. You see, through these sayings, what Jesus is doing is he's telling you something. He's telling you something about how his kingdom operates, what it means to come under his rule and reign, what it means to live with his values in mind. He's telling you essentially what it means to be a disciple of Christ, what it means to be what we would call a Christian. He's saying, if you want to be a Christian, do you want to be a disciple? Do you want to follow me, live under my rule and reign? Then here's what that means. Here's what it takes. And in fact, in our passage this morning in Mark 10, verses 32 and following, 
we're going to learn two things about what it means to be a disciple and what it takes. And the two things are this. You can't be a Christian until you are first served by Jesus. And if you are a Christian, then you will serve others like Jesus. That's the two lessons I want us to hear this morning. You can't be a Christian unless you are first served by Jesus. And if you are a Christian, you will serve others like Jesus. If I were to put it more succinctly, I'd say this. A Christian is someone who is served by Jesus and so serves like Jesus. A Christian is someone who is served by Jesus and so serves like Jesus. The first one. You can't be a Christian unless you are first served by Jesus. Look at the passage with me, beginning at verse 32. As the passage starts, Jesus and his disciples are going up to Jerusalem, and he makes a prediction about what's going to happen when they get there. Here's what it says. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, that's a title that Jesus used for himself, he took it out of the book of Daniel, and he applied it to himself, and he's talking about himself when he says, here's what's going to happen, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him, And after three days, he will rise. So Jesus says, listen, fellas, we're going up to Jerusalem. Here's what's going to happen to me. When we get there, the chief priests and the scribes, the leaders of the Jewish religion, they're going to take me and they're going to condemn me to death. They're going to hand me over to the Gentiles. That's the non-Jews. At the time, that was the Romans who were in power. So the Jewish leaders are going to take me and give me to the Romans. And once the Romans get their hands on me, They're going to mock me, they're going to spit on me, they're going to flog me, and they're going to kill me. And after my dead body is put in the grave, three days later, my body will rise from the dead. That is what is coming. Jesus says, this is what's coming when we get to Jerusalem. And when you think about it, you begin to think, this awful thing is what Jesus is getting ready for. And he's essentially saying, you know, The Jewish people had been waiting all their lives for the Messiah, the anointed one, the the Christ, the one who would come and kick out the Gentiles and restore God's kingdom. And the irony of ironies is that when the Jewish Messiah finally came to his people, they who hated the Gentiles partnered with the Gentiles in this one endeavor to kill God. They handed Jesus over to their sworn enemies so that their sworn enemies could mock him, spit on him, kill him, flog him, and kill him. And, and what the text is saying is, this wasn't a Jewish sin or a Gentile sin. This was everybody's sin. Everybody, those who were Jews and not Jews, were implicated. All of humanity is implicated in the murder of God. And this is what Jesus says. Now, here's the thing. This is actually the third time in Mark that Jesus has predicted this. He said this once back in chapter 8. He said it again in chapter 9. He says it perhaps most clearest here in chapter 10. Three times, if you've been reading Mark, you've heard Jesus is going to die. What you haven't heard yet is really why that's going to happen. Why is he going to die? 
Meaning, if you were reading Mark for the very first time, by the time you get to chapter 10, you've heard now three times the awful things that's going to happen to Jesus. But till now, you haven't been told, why will that happen to him? Why are these awful things going to happen to Jesus? And now, this is where Mark 10 sort of pushes the ball downfield further. It advances for us and gives us the why. It's in verse 45. Look at it. Now we get the why of Jesus' death. Verse 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Why is Jesus going to die? Because he, the Son of Man, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Why is it that the Son of Man will be condemned to death and spit on and mocked and flogged and killed? It's because, verse 45, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That word ransom there was a word back in the day that would have been tied to sort of this slavery system. If you were a slave, then the only way you could be set free was for someone to pay your debt. And the only way you could pay your debt was for someone to pay that ransom for you, and then you were set free. Even in our own day, ransom is what you pay for someone who's in captivity or bondage, and it's the cost you give to win them back, to set them free. The teaching of the Bible would be that your condition and mine is that we find ourselves enslaved, in bondage, in captivity to our sin. And that our sin is like this spiritual debt we keep accruing with God. In fact, this is why Jesus, when he taught us to pray, he taught us saying, pray, Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Right? And he's not talking about currency. He's saying, we have a spiritual debt with God. And when you take in the Bible's understanding of sin being likened to death, debt, you begin to see how indebted are we. You think through everything you have ever said that you ought not to have said. Or everything you have ever done that you ought not to have done. Or everything you have ever thought that you ought not to have thought. And you begin to think, how high does this mountain of debt go? You think through the things we shouldn't have done that we've done, or then you think through all the things we should have done that we didn't do. How deep is this hole of debt we're in? The scriptures are teaching us, you and I find ourselves in this spiritual debt that we could have never paid. We could have never climbed out of that hole. We could have never paid down that debt. Not one lifetime, not ten lifetimes, not a thousand lifetimes. All of eternity would have been required for you to pay what you owe for your sins. For me to pay what I owe for my sins. And yet the good news of Christianity, what Jesus came into the world to say is, I came to pay your debt. Now you have to hear that with me for a moment. Jesus came to pay your debt. You had a debt you could not pay, and Jesus came to pay a debt he did not owe. You owed a debt you couldn't pay, and Jesus came to pay a debt he didn't owe. Jesus is saying, the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many, to pay down the debt that you owe, to get you out of that spiritual indebtedness. He came to clear your debt. This is the good news that he's saying here, that what we could have never done, he has done for us. He came to 
give his life as a ransom for many. In fact, this is so central to why Jesus came that he literally says, for the Son of Man came for this. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Meaning this is why he came. If this was Christmas morning and we were wondering, why did Jesus come? We would answer that by saying he literally came to die. This is what makes verse 32 all the more striking, by the way. That verse 32 should say that while they were going to Jerusalem, Jesus was walking ahead of them. I was struck and stunned by that small detail. In light of the fact that he knows what's awaiting him in Jerusalem. If you knew that as soon as you got finished with this plane ride, or as soon as you got finished with this trip, as soon as you got out of the car door, that your worst nightmare was going to come to pass. That if you knew death was awaiting you at the end of this journey, tell me where in line would you be? You would be way at the back, trying to savor every last step before this awful fate awaited you. Is it not stunning, striking to hear they were on their way to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them? That knowing exactly what's going to happen, he told them they're going to mock me and spit on me and flog me and kill me. That he was heading the pack, that he was leading his disciples there, that he was at the front of the line. That step after step, his face was deliberate and set, his shoulders pointed to Jerusalem knowing full well what was coming to him there. Why? This is why he came. He came to die. He had been taking those steps from his first hour. Nay, from before that, he had from eternity been past, been destined to take those steps. This is what the Father had for him. And he had been willing to lead them, to go ahead of them on the way to Jerusalem. And friends, hear me. This is what separates Jesus from all the other religious leaders and all the other worldviews, and all the other religions. Whatever you might know about God, your natural inclination is to think. Religion is basically going to tell me, if I want to get to God, here's what I must do. And Jesus Christ has come to declare to you that the very heart and core of the Christian message is, God came into this world to do something for you. He says, the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve. So I want to put that as plain as I can to you. Jesus is saying, I didn't come to get you to do anything for me. I didn't come to get you to do anything for me. I came to do something for you. The central message of the Christian faith, the very heart, the very core, all the other periphery stuff aside, the very core of the Christian message is, I didn't come into this world to show you the things you have to now do for me. I didn't come to get you to serve me. I came to do something for you. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. That God himself took on flesh to do something for you. Something, namely, that you couldn't do for yourself. And he came to you. That's why you can't become a Christian unless you are first served by Jesus Christ. You have to hear that. You can't become a Christian unless you are served by Jesus Christ. You're not a Christian because at the end of the day, you're going to have to show him some of the things you did for him. You are a Christian because you come helpless going, unless you, God, serve me, 
unless you extend cosmic help and hand out to me. Until you're humble to the position you have nothing to offer and you needed God himself to serve you, you can't become a Christian. Because to become a Christian, you must first be served by Jesus Christ. Listen, if you've never heard it clear, hear it as clear as I could possibly say. You will not go to God on the last day and show him a resume of the things you have done. That will not be what you present to him. You will go to God on the last day and there will be one bullet on your resume. And it will be what Jesus did for you. That's the Christian message. He didn't come to give you a new ethic, primarily, principally. He came to do something for you. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for you. Do you want to be a Christian? Then first acknowledge your incredible debt and that you couldn't pay it off and that he gave his life as a ransom to pay your debt. And, and I almost feel prompted in my own heart as I've thought through this this week. For those of you that are Christian, have you drifted from that first good news? With all the things that you know that you need to do for God, for all the things that you have to serve him, with all your learning and all your theology, as you mature in the Christian faith, have you drifted from the good news that this whole thing began by what he did for you and not what you do for him? Because if you live day by day and I live day by day as if my relationship with God fluctuates, I'm back in this system of thought that says God approves or accepts me based on what I do. And the good news for you this morning is this whole thing began when you came helpless and had nothing to offer and said, unless you do something for me, I'm done. If you get that, then it does something to you. It begins to change your heart. And then you're ready for the second thing this passage teaches. And the second thing this passage teaches is that if you are a Christian, then you will serve others like Jesus. Meaning, you can't be a Christian until you are first served by Jesus. And if you are a Christian, then you will serve others like Jesus. To say it succinctly, a Christian is someone who is served by Jesus and so serves others like Jesus. What I simply mean to have you here in this is that if you get who Jesus is and what he's done, then it's going to change who you are and what you do, right? And the way we see this in this passage is because the disciples didn't first see this. We see this because they didn't first see it. We get it because they didn't first get it. We understand because of their failure to understand. In fact, as I was thinking through Mark now, Mark has written... Peter, through Mark, has written so many times of the disciples' failures. It's such good news and hope to us that the disciples have given us basically their blooper reel over and over and over again. And as we watch their mistakes and missteps, we're taught to make right steps. It's through their failure we come to understand, and it is so again here. In fact, there's a pattern by now. Three times Jesus has made predictions in Mark. And every single one of the three times, after he makes his prediction, it's met immediately with failure by the disciples to get it. And right after that, Jesus takes that opportunity to teach them and us. Chapter 8, he says, I'm going to die. Here's what this means. Immediately, Peter messes up. Jesus has to teach them. 
Chapter 9, Jesus says, I'm going to die. Here's what's going to happen. Immediately, they all mess up and get into an argument similar to this one about who's the greatest. Jesus has to teach them. And now chapter 10, Jesus has made this prediction about what's going to happen to him. He's just told them he's going to be mocked, spit on, flogged, and killed. And here's how they respond. Verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, by the way, right there itself, you know that whatever's coming isn't going to be good, right? Because when does someone come up to you? When does a friend or a spouse or a child come up to you and go, listen, I'm going to ask you something, but I just need you to say yes no matter what. When do they do that? They do that when they know you're probably going to say no right? That's why they preface it with this need for a blank check. That's why they come to you and say, listen, I'm going to ask you to do something, but you just got to say yes. I'm, I'm, I'll tell you later what it is, but I need you to just say yes. That's what they're asking for. They're asking for a blank check from Jesus. And Jesus, as you'll see over and over again in this section, because he's wonderfully patient with weak disciples like us. He doesn't reprimand them. He doesn't scold them. He doesn't even say, no, 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 ask your question first. He simply responds to them, verse 36, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And if you take this in for a moment, here's the moment. They are getting a blank check. They could ask God for anything they want. And, and what is it that they want more than anything else? Meaning, if I were to ask you, if you could ask God to do anything, if you could ask God to do anything, what would you ask him for? And here, with a blank check in view, here's what they want more than anything else. Verse 37, and they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Translation, what they want more than anything else is to be made much of. Is, is essentially what you and I want more than anything else. It's to matter. It's to be significant. It's to be seen and recognized and known and viewed as important. It, it's to know and feel like you're worth something. This is what they want more than anything else. What we want you to do for us, Jesus, is when you come into glory, we want a seat at your right and at your left. Now, Clearly, they have done some selective hearing, right? Right after Jesus has said, when we get to Jerusalem, I will be mocked and spit on and flogged and killed. They don't hear any of that. In fact, I think my guess is that the one word that got stuck in their brain is, we're going up to Jerusalem. And in their mind, the background that they have with the Old Testament and the Bible is Jerusalem is the city of kings. It's where David ruled and reigned. David's friends ruled and reigned with him. Jesus is the son of David. He's the Messiah. Peter already said that. He's going to get his kingdom once we get to Jerusalem. And so what that means is if he's going to be king, there's going to be some top cabinet spots available. And so we need to just settle the matter of what's the seating chart when we get into the kingdom. That's all we need to figure out. So Jesus, when you take your throne, could me and my brother sit at the right and sit at the left when you come into your glory? That's what they want. Jesus, you're going to have a parade. We want to be at the front of the parade, right? That's their question. And Jesus, verse 38, said to them, 
You do not know what you are asking. Again, you'll see over and over again, Jesus just said, I'm going to be killed, spit on, flogged, mocked. Their question is, where are we going to sit? And again, Jesus' response is, you, you don't know what you're asking. He says to them, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? He pulls these two metaphors to try and get them to see the suffering that awaits him. In the Old Testament, the first half of your Bible, the cup of God was often what the wicked were going to drink. The psalmist would say over and over again that the wicked are going to drink the cup of God's wrath down to its dregs. And you'll see the cup appear again later in the story when Jesus is in the garden. The night before his death, what does he pray? Father, if it's in your will, please take this cup away from me. Right? So Jesus is staring at this cup of God's wrath for the wicked. What the wicked are meant to swallow down to the end of God's judgment and justice and punishment and wrath. This is the cup that he's staring at. And then he speaks of his baptism. And, and I think the idea here is that he is going to be swallowed up in this suffering. That he's going to be immersed in it. He's going to be buried in it. God's judgment is going to wash over him. This is what's awaiting him. And he asks his disciples, tell me, are you ready for that? He says to them, listen, you don't know what you're asking for. You're, you've got in mind my glory, yes, but you don't see that the path to that glory is going to be through the cross. And moreover, when I'm on that cross and the glory of God's judgment and the glory of his mercy are seen most visible there, there will be someone hanging to the right of me and someone to the left of me. Are you sure you know what you're asking for? Do you know what I'm about? I'm about to drink from this cup and be baptized in this baptism. And are you sure you want to be at the right and left of that? You don't know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink this cup and be baptized with this baptism? Verse 39, and they said to him, yep, we're able. Don't you love these disciples? I, I, I think the question was supposed to get them to go, Wait a minute, we're so sorry we asked. Could you just backtrack that whole thing? Let's just rewind this. Just ignore that we even came to you. They instead go, absolutely, we are able. Right? And, and when we were in our GCM, our smaller communities, and we were talking through this passage, we laughed a bunch at this, thinking, you know, these disciples, it's just like Peter would later do. Even if everybody leaves you, Lord Jesus, I will die with you. And it wasn't just Peter. It was all of them. James and John are saying, whatever comes, we're ready. And yet the first moment someone said, boo, they all ran away. Right? And, and we paused and thought in our study together, this is just like us. Have you ever made these grand commitments to God? And when push came to shove, you bailed on them all? God, I promise I will never do this again. Or God, I promise I will do this for you. And, and yet, just like them, Jesus, we are more than able to do that. And Jesus says to them, verse 39, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been pre prepared. Jesus is saying, you don't fully know what you're asking for. And by saying, yes, we're ready to drink the cup and the baptism, you don't even know what you're agreeing to and committing to and saying yet. But you will. You will know. Because if you follow me, you will follow me just like me to glory through suffering. 
And these disciples have no idea, but they will, that they too will drink from a cup and will go through a baptism of suffering. In fact, church history would tell us, do you know every single one of them, every single one of them drank a cup of suffering and was baptized with this kind of baptism. Every single one of them, they were beheaded, they were stoned, they were imprisoned, they were speared, they were crucified. Every single one of them exiled, persecuted in various ways for Jesus Christ. And he says to them, now the seating arrangement, that's been prepared by my father. But I do know this, that the path to glory for you will be like it is for me through suffering. If you're going to follow Jesus, that's what he promises to them. Now, verse 41, when the ten heard of it, they began to be indignant at James and John. That too I love. That when the ten hear, and I imagine in my head, I imagine that James and John pulled Jesus off to a side and sort of whispered, you can't ask for this out loud. How are you going to ask with the other ten listening? And so maybe somehow it got overheard or got back to them. But when they hear of it, they get so angry at James and John. And why do they get angry? Because James and John got there first. Right? This same thing is in them. That's why they get so angry. They get angry because they're thinking to themselves, what do you mean you two went and asked for the right hand or the left hand? Where do you think we're going to sit? Right? And what makes it that you two would think that you are going to get the right and left hand seat? Where would the rest of us sit then? What makes you any better than us? This is their squabble. Right? You imagine that Peter, if you remember, Peter is the source for Mark's entire gospel account. You imagine that Peter didn't forget this one, right? Because till now, it had been the three of them, right? The three of them were the inner circle. When Jesus healed the little girl, he took Peter, James, and John. When they went up to the Transfiguration Mount, it was Peter, James, and John. And now these two scoundrel brothers pulled a fast one on Peter and even excluded him and said, Jesus, don't tell Peter, can it just be me and John when we're in your glory? And Peter said to Mark, you better write that story down, right? He, he didn't forget that one. Now, listen to this. They're angry because self-centeredness and vain ambition and making much of themselves and human vanity is just as much in them as it is in James and John. And as they're squabbling about this, and I want you to hear, this isn't the first time they argue about this. And if we read all the gospel accounts, it won't be the last either. In chapter 9, they fought about who was the greatest. In chapter 10, they're fighting about who the greatest is. Luke tells us that the night before Jesus died, literally after he had given out communion for the first time, he literally said, this is my body given for you. This is my blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Take, eat, and drink this. The next section is, and they argued about who was the greatest. That's the leader's of Jesus' church. This is the ingredients Jesus had to work with as he thought through, who am I going to leave my entire kingdom project to? Jesus takes this moment now, hearing them squabble, to again correct them, to instruct them. Verse 42, and if we'll listen, he's correcting us as well. Verse 42, and Jesus called to them and said, called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles Lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Hear that again. You know how the world operates. 
You know how they have their positions and their titles and their power and their authority and their prestige. You know that they consider great those who wait on them hand and foot, but it shall not be so among you. Imagine him saying that to the twelve that night. It shall not be so among you. Imagine him, hear him saying that to you, Marod. You know how the world operates. It shall not be that way here. It shall not be that way with you. It goes on to say, but whoever among you would be great must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. As he did in chapter 9, he's doing again in chapter 10. He's redefining for his disciples what it means to be great. And he's saying, listen, our problem, their problem and our problem, hear me. Their problem and our problem is we think of greatness exactly the way the world does. We define greatness just like the world does. And so, just like these disciples, you and I, in whatever specter, whatever field, whatever arena we find ourselves in, we want so badly for a name for ourselves. We want to be made much of. We want to be thought of highly. We want to be valued and considered of great worth. We too, just like them in our day, we find our worth and value by what other people think of us or ascribe to us, by our achievements, our accomplishments, by the initials that come after our name. We operate just like the world. And here's what Jesus would say to us this morning. That's because you didn't get, you didn't get who I am or what I'm about or what I've done for you. Hear this for one second. If you're in the treadmill, like I often am, of finding your worth and value based on what others think of you, based on what you accomplish, based on being great in the world's eyes. Is it not because as you're searching so badly for something to give you significance, something to give you value, something to tell you that you're worth something, isn't it because we have completely missed, Jesus just said, I came to give my life as a ransom for you. Meaning, if you want to know what you're worth, Does it not mean something to say you were worth enough in God's sight that Jesus Christ gladly emptied his veins to buy you? That your significance, what you matter, what you count for, that God, when he saw the crowd of humanity, saw you and said, I want him. I want her. And as one preacher reminded me this week, meaning even if there was no one else for you, he would come. And give his life as a ransom to have you. He would say, if it meant having you, then flog me. Then mock me. Then spit on me and kill me. If I could have you. And if you get that that's your worth and your value and what you matter to and your significance, then can't that potentially set you free from this never-ending need to gain approval by what you do or what others say of you. It could get you off that treadmill. He's saying, I have come to be a ransom to set you free from that kind of thinking. And moreover, if we get that, then we don't have to operate like the world does. We can take Jesus at his word and begin to see greatness differently. Hear that. Jesus isn't rebuking you for wanting to be great. He's simply redefining for you what greatness means. And he's saying the definitions of the world are not what greatness is. In this passage, he's saying greatness is serving. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. 
It shall not be so among you. Whoever of you would be greatest must be least, and whoever would be first must be slave of all. True greatness in Jesus' definition, hear me, is serving. He's saying your posture must not reflect that of the world. You've got to be different. It shall not be so among you. And the reason it's got to be different is you have to have the same posture that Jesus did. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. You're not above your Lord. If he served, then we served. And we who have been served by Jesus ought to serve like Jesus. You can't be a Christian unless you're served by Christ. And if you are a Christian, then you'll serve others like Christ. Let me end by giving you some application. What does this mean for you as you go from here? And I simply want to say to you, there are endless applications of this. If we begin to think of greatness differently, would you imagine God is here this morning not to have you serve him. God is here to serve you. And if you took that in for a moment, God himself is here to serve you. And it's not because you guys are great people. It's because he's great. Because greatness is serving. Of course he's going to serve you. And that's the measure, not of your greatness, but of his. Because what great people do is they serve. That's what greatness is. I heard a preacher this week, as he was trying to give applications, he said very interestingly, he said to the teenagers in his room, he said, teenagers, if you're listening to me, then I want you to think about who God would say would be great in your life. And he went on to say, That greatness, real greatness, as God defines it, is probably the person sitting right next to you in the form of your mom or your dad. Right? Imagine that a teenager's worldview was shaped so that it's not the guy that I put on the poster in my wall that is truly great. The one that everybody knows that's a household name. But that in God's sight, mom and dad who serve me, that's a vision of greatness. And if you took that in, then wouldn't that change how you think through things at home? and in the church, and at work, and in the world? How would a husband view his wife if he took Jesus seriously that the one who serves is the one who's great? How would a husband view his wife? He took Jesus' definition. How would a a wife view her husband if she bought Jesus that the one who serves is the one who's great? How would children view their parents if they taught Jesus, took Jesus at his word, that the one who serves is the one who's great? How would you view one another within the church? How would you think about work? I would say to you, this week at work, you have endless opportunities to be great. Hear that. At work this week, you have countless opportunities to be great, and none of it has to do with promotions or accolades or achievements or a good word from your boss. You can be great at work this week by doing things that will go completely unnoticed and unseen by men, and yet will be viewed and remembered and recorded and restored and rewarded by God in heaven, because he's given you a different definition of what it means to be great, and that means you don't have to wait for a word of acknowledgement from your boss to be great at work. There are countless, endless applications for this. Let me just give you one more for all of us. As we think not just individually, but what it means for us to be Christians, a church, even in this moment, in in our country, and where we find. For example, think of what this means even in this election year. 
in the midst of all the stuff that's going on with all the politics. I think it's a timely word for us to hear. Jesus reminds us, the world clamors about power and prestige and titles and accolades and power and authority. The Gentiles are the ones who rule and exercise authority, but it shall not be so among you. Many, many who are much smarter than I am have written articles and all kinds of things saying that some of the angst, hear me, whatever your leaning is, whatever your opinion is, some of the angst of the Christian church in America over this election cycle in particular is because more than ever, we are being squeezed out to the margins. No matter what your political leaning may be, I think it's fair for most Christians in America to say, I don't feel completely at home in either party or with either candidate. Neither seems to perfectly reflect what I'm about or what we value. And perhaps more than ever, the evangelical church, the Christian church is being squeezed to the margins. It's at the edges. Your opinions don't matter as much. Your, your values aren't upheld as the most important thing. And perhaps that's because, unlike any other time in our own country's past, for the first time, maybe we are not as powerful as we once were. We don't have a seat at the table anymore. We're being marginalized more and more. And as we do so, it would probably profit us to think of the first Christians or even the Christians on the other side of the planet who have always lived in the margins, who have never had power, who have never had a seat at the table, and who always knew that Jesus said the way you change the world hasn't been by having titles and prestige and power and authority. It shall not be so among you. In fact, let me read you just this one quote from a pastor named Tim Keller. He said this a long time ago, and yet I think it's a very timely word for what we find ourselves in in this moment. Hear this quote. He says, for you, God says the route to gaining influence is not taking power. Influence gained through power and control doesn't really change society. It doesn't change hearts. I'm calling you to a totally different approach. Be so sacrificially loving that the people around you who don't believe what you believe will soon be unable to imagine the place without you. They'll trust you because they see that you're not out only for yourself, but out for them too. When they voluntarily begin to look up to you because of the attractiveness of your love and service, you'll have real influence. It will be an influence given to you by others, not taken by you from others. Who is the model for gaining that way of influence? It's Jesus himself, of course. How did he respond to his enemies? He didn't call down legions of angels to fight them. He died for their sins. And as he was dying, he prayed for them. And here this ends. And if at the very heart of your worldview is a man dying for his enemies, then the way you're going to win influence in society is through service rather than power and control. Amen? A timely word for us. You don't have to panic. We don't have to panic that we're losing power. Jesus' church has always been in the margins, always been pushed to the fringes. And the ones that the world considers as not worth thinking about, the least, the last, and the lowest, have always been great in God's sight. And they've always been the ones who have changed the world. Let me end by telling you this. There's good hope for us. That if we see the Son of Man who came and gave his life to be ransomed, it can change our hearts to embrace this way of living. And you know how I know? 
It's because James and John changed. The very ones who came and said, give us a seat at the right and the left hand, after they saw the Son of Man, after they saw him spit on, after they saw him flogged, after they saw him mocked, after they saw him crucified and killed, and after they saw him on the third day rise again, it did something to them. They redefined greatness. They followed him in the path of the cup and the baptism. They went with him to the margins, and they changed the world from the inside out. James, in the book of Acts, was, tells us he did drink that cup. He was beheaded. And John, John as an old man was exiled to an island. And many years later, here's what John, the same one who said, I want a right seat at your hand, said, by this we know love, 1 John 3, verses 16, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. You hear that? The same guy who tried to get a seat above his brothers by the end of his life said, we saw what love is and we ought to love one another as well. We ought to, in fact, lay down our lives for the brothers. A Christian is someone who is served by Jesus and so serves like Jesus. Let's pray together.